You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're going to list out the part in Revelation where Jesus sends a letter to the church in Ephesus. And I thought it would be worthwhile us looking at this, particularly because I think it's very reflective of where I believe we are as a congregation here. If you are a visitor here, you are very, very welcome, and I hope that you will see that we're a church that is seeking, I hope like most other churches, uh, to follow Jesus Christ. Page 1, 2, 3, 4, we'll read from Revelation chapter 2, and I want to read verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Lord, thank You that You spoke so clearly to the church in Ephesus and that through that You also speak to us. Help us as we look at this this evening and may it be beneficial to each one of us, whatever our own personal circumstances, that our desire would be for You and to love You and to know You. In Your name we ask it. Amen. Now, Ephesus was a very similar city to Dundee in some ways. It was a busy commercial port situated near the mouth of a river. Uh, It had a couple of large stadiums. One was a 25,000-seater, so you could get both Tanadice and Dens Park uh, in there. It was a population slightly bigger than Dundee, about 200,000. It was called the Light of Asia. It was the headquarters of the cult of Diana, uh, Artemis. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. And we read about that in Acts chapter 19. It is in that context that this church had to, was called into being. It was called into being when Paul went and preached the gospel there, when he lectured uh, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He uh, saw many, many people become Christians. They faced some degree of persecution, but they were a, a fairly successful church. They saw growth, and it was a good time to be a Christian and a good place to be a Christian in Ephesus. You read the whole of Ephesians, and over and over again you find the commendation for the love and the peace and the unity that is uh, 
that exists there. It's a church that had lots of problems, but it was a, it was a good church to belong to. I have no intention of, uh, at least I hope, this doesn't sound arrogant at all. This is a good time to belong to the church here. We live in a culture which is becoming increasingly dark, and yet God is blessing us in so many different ways that sometimes I fear there's a danger that we just don't appreciate just how much. We had, um, I'm just seeing if they're here, no they're not, and a couple of our uh, students from last year who've left, graduated, and gone away to darkest Englandshire, uh, and uh, they were just saying how much they missed the church and how much they didn't realize the things that they were there to appreciate. And I think that we sometimes can see the problems so much that we, we don't appreciate what God has granted to us. And I think He has granted us so many good things. But because He loves us, He, he stays with us and He comes to us and He speaks to us. And sometimes what He says can be a little disconcerting. But let's just go through this and see. You can decide how much this applies to you and applies to us uh, as a church, as a whole. I'll say something about that at the end. Jesus holds the seven stars in His right hand, and He walks among the seven lampstands. The seven stars carries this idea of the, uh, most people think, the leadership in the church, the seven churches and seven leaders. And it's saying that Jesus is really concerned with that. It's an indication, most people think it's an indication that Jesus is guaranteeing the salvation of His people. He's saying, you don't have to worry. You're not going to lose your salvation. He's talking about how we hold on to uh, what He has granted to us and how we continue to see that develop and grow. So, the seven lampstands carries this idea again of the church being a light in the darkness. We sang, light of the world, you came down into darkness. Well, the light still shines. Owen prayed, and it's a, it's a beautiful picture. You walk along the Perth Road, or uh, you're coming in the train across the Tay rail bridge right now, and the lights from this church, I know it's a lot of electricity and we could dim it down, but the lights from this church really do shine. Now, in a spiritual sense, that is what we are looking for in the church. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you know, I, he's walking among these seven golden lampstands. He's inspecting them and looking at how their light shines. In the free church setup, in the Presbyterian setup, we have a thing called a quinquennial visit. And I, I should warn you, we're going to get another one in January, I think. It's every five years. For me, they seem to come very much quicker than that. But it's a visit from other churches in the area, from what we call the presbytery, to see how we are doing. This is something that is much more serious than that, serious though that is. It's Christ walking amongst the churches, inspecting the churches. And I wonder what He thinks of where we're at. No, what we think. We judge a church. 
We look at it, we say, this church is a good church, this church is this, this church is that, the church is not what it used to be. But what does Jesus think of this church or any other church? Verse 2 tells us that He knows all of our knowledge of churches is limited. We don't know. There are things beneath the surface that we may not know. There may be love and works and so on that we know very little of going on. And there may also be hatred and bitterness and anger that we don't know. But Jesus knows. I know your deeds, He says. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. He is aware of that. It's the absolute clearness, writes one commentator, of mental vision which photographs all the facts of life as they pass. We cannot hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing gaze of Jesus Christ. And that is a disconcerting fact as well as an encouraging one. It's why hypocrisy is so stupid, because we think that we can hide from God, but we cannot. He knows. And Christ also speaks. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Christ tells us what He sees. He tells us what He knows. He tells us what is in our favor, and He makes promises. It must be the worst possible thing for any church if God is silent. The old story of the man, the uh, black man in South Africa trying to get into a church, and uh, Jesus comes up to him and speaks to him and says, it's okay, I've been trying to get into that church for a long time. I think that the worst thing that could happen to us as a church would be if Jesus was silent. What we looked at this morning in Job was actually quite difficult, and it was quite hard. What we read in Genesis 19 was difficult and was hard. But what would be ten times, a thousand times worse than that would be if Jesus did not speak, if He did not tell us what He thought, if He did not reveal. And it is very, very important for us. That's why we stick with the Word of God, because someone say, well, how do you know what Jesus thinks? How do you know what Jesus feels about the church? It's, we find that in His Word. Well, how does that apply to us? Because this is not written to the church at St. Peter's in Dundee. It's written to the church in Ephesus. Well, that's the amazing power of the Word of God, that uh, God takes that, and God speaks to us through that, and through the mirror of God's Word, we see ourselves as we are. That's what James says. We go and we look in the mirror of God's Word, and we see ourselves as we are. So, what is Christ's assessment of this church, and how does it apply to us? First of all, He praises them. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. This was a serving church, a church that worked hard, I was so uh, proud of this congregation when we did the Soul Last Day, because several people spoke afterwards, people who were visiting, and, and 
God's people were really encouraged on that day. People from Dunfermline and from Glasgow and from Inverness and from Edinburgh, from, from all different places. And they were so encouraged, not just by hearing the speakers, but by the fellowship people had with one another. But several people commented to me, they said, well, it's just great how people in the church worked so hard. And I know sometimes we're very humble Christians, and when someone praises us, we say, oh, no, no, I think it was nothing. But we know that it, it, it actually was something. And I think that I'm, when I look and see how hardworking some people are in this fellowship, it, it's something to be very thankful for, and the greatest commendation we will ever hear is from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Hard work is really, really important. Now, there are people who are dead lazy. There are people who can't be bothered. There are people who think of church as a kind of shop that they go to. There are people who are so tied up with other things and get very frustrated if, if, if asked to do anything. There are, of course, people who overwork. There are people who work for the wrong reason and so on. We don't know, but Christ knows. And I don't believe you ever get a biblical church which is not a serving church, which there is not hard work. It's, um, we, we like things to be instant. One of my, I, I love Sundays. I love the Lord's Day for lots of different reasons, for being with you guys, for um, prayer, and for being able to teach God's Word. But I love uh, Sunday afternoons because we have people for a meal, and it's always a fabulous meal. Uh, I don't cook it, but it's a, always a fabulous meal. And then we sit around the fire, and we talk, and, you know, we just have really, really good fellowship, and it is wonderful. But it doesn't happen without hard work. It doesn't happen without somebody giving up a good part of their Saturday to cook that meal and to prepare that meal. It's the same with almost everything in the church, that nothing just happens. I think yesterday when we did the Christmas fair, it's a lot of hard work that people put in, and Jesus praises and commends that. He praises their perseverance, verses 2 and 3. I know your perseverance. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my sake. John was in jail on the island of Patmos because of the persecution that was occurring in Ephesus. He was their minister. He was in jail. This was a suffering church, and they kept on going. They didn't give in. They didn't chuck in the towel. They didn't retreat. They didn't desert. They just persevered. And if we want to see God's blessing, we just have to keep on persevering, keep on keeping on. He also praises their intolerance. They have tested false apostles. This was a steadfast church. They hated the practice of the Nicolaitans. They could not tolerate wicked men. And that was so important because Paul warns the elders in this church in Acts 20, he warns them that there were going to be people who would come in and disrupt the church, 
come into leadership in the church, who would do a great deal of harm. And he said, you've got to stay on your guard. You've got to prevent this happening. Now, we live in a culture where people want to say, well, you've really got to be tolerant all the time, tolerant. You know, you've got to love people. But let me go back to the meal. Supposing you come to our house and somebody cooks food that's rotten, that's poisonous. I, I'm, I'm, be thankful that I don't really cook. I'm not a great cook. I once had, uh, I can't remember how many people, I think it was 12 people who turned up for a meal, and I thought, I can only make scrambled egg. So I wanted to make scrambled eggs, so I thought, okay, when I make scrambled egg, it's three eggs. What's three times 12? Okay, 36 eggs. So I got this great big pan, and I put 36 eggs in, and a whole lot of milk, and a whole lot of butter, and so on, and just cooked it up. It was an absolutely, forgive me saying this, an absolutely minging meal, because there was one rotten egg. I mean, really rotten. And I just thought, oh, it doesn't matter. The others will stop that. I know, I put it in now. We'll carry on. So anyway, you can imagine. Uh, I'm so thankful that nobody died. But it's not really. Imagine somebody watching me do that and saying, David, that egg's off. That's rotten. And I said, no, 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 it's okay. Don't worry. You know, be kind. Poor egg. Uh, You know, let's just mix it in with all the others and it'll be fine. Some people do that with Christian teaching and Christian leadership. I, or, I think most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us hate conflict. I hate conflict. But when somebody is teaching stuff that is not the Bible and missing out stuff that is in the Bible, it's not loving. It's not good to tolerate that. This was a steadfast church. And again, I don't wish to be arrogant in this, but I do think that the Lord would praise us and thank us for seeking to be faithful to Him. We do seek to do that. Maybe sometimes we get it wrong. I'm not claiming perfection in that respect. But I can absolutely guarantee you this. If somebody stood up here and taught something that wasn't in the Bible, there are those here, including myself, who would stand up and say, no, you're out of order. You're out of line. That's not what Scripture says. That's not what Jesus says. We want to stick with what the Bible says. So, there is praise for that. But there's also a challenge, and it's a very severe challenge. Verse 4, you've forsaken your first love. Here's the irony. They had been warned about false teachers by Paul. Acts 20, verses 25 to 35, Paul cries with them. Paul weeps with them about what he sees happening. And they've pretty well taken on board that warning. They've cut out the false teaching. But their weakness was a coldness of heart. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Christ searches our hearts to know if that is the case. Orthodoxy is never enough. Hard work is never enough. In fact, It is all too easy for us to be so preoccupied with Christian service that we can turn away from Christ Himself. We are at every meeting. We help at every event. We are those hardworking servants whom Christ commends. And yet Jesus looks at us and says, why are you doing this? What is your motivation? The church doesn't know, but He knows. And He looks at this whole church, and overall, He questions their motivation, and their love. In fact, so much so that He calls them 
to repent, and he says that they have fallen from a great height. And because what has happened is this. First of all, they're full of zeal. They're bursting with love. They're really enthusiastic, and they do lots and lots of work. They carry on doing lots and lots of work, but the zeal and the enthusiasm and the love for Jesus has gone, and all they're left with is the work. And what does that mean? It means they end up getting really tired, really exhausted, the, the stressed, short-tempered, the motivation is going. What we do for the Lord is important, but even more so why we do it. And I think we as a fellowship, and I include myself in that, need to think about that. What is this first love? It's something that's personal. It's something that's open. It's something that's excited. It's something that's uninhibited. It's something that is fervent. It's something that is passionate. We'll stick on the cooking theme. I like MasterChef. I like, uh, not celebrity MasterChef, but professional MasterChef. Just catching up on the episodes just now. But sometimes it really is so cliched. If you've seen where... It's all in the name, isn't it? You can work it out for yourself what it's about. But it's a group of professional chefs who are trying to make their way to be seen as the master chef of Britain. There's a competition and so on. And they get interviewed as they're cooking various dishes by Greg and Michel Roux or whatever. And um, it's funny. It's so cliched. So many of them go, I'm really passionate about my cooking. I'm passionate about food. I'm passionate about this dish. You know, I cook, you know, anchovies, salad, and I don't know, sole or whatever. And you go, I'm just passionate about this dish. I'm really passionate about Italian food. And the word passionate is used all the time. Maybe they are. Maybe that really is what floats your boat. Maybe you get a recipe and you're just so excited about the cake that you baked and uh, everything else. And you can understand that because it's good work and, and you enjoy doing it and so on. Well, Jesus is just simply asking us, what do you get passionate about? What do you love as well as work? What do you shout about? What do you rejoice in? What do you dream about? In Ephesians, 20 times the word, in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, 20 times the word love is used over and over again, actually. Chapters 4 and 5, it's used numerous times. And, and, and again, it's just this idea of not of just of Christ loving us, but us loving Jesus Christ. And it's a really, really hard question for you and I to answer. What about our love for Jesus Christ? Where is that? How, how is that the case? How do we know? An old Puritan Octavius Winslow, in, in commenting on this, has some great ideas that I just want to use. He says, we know that our love is growing cold when God becomes less an object of desire and contemplation. We don't long to be with God. We don't long to be with Jesus. We, we have just drifted away. It's so easy to do. You can do it in a, in a, in a relationship. Say so you're married to somebody, and you're together, and you're living together, and you're working together, and you're sharing together, and you're eating together. But sometimes the marriage can just drift, and you take your partner for granted, 
and the, how should we call it, the fires of love are, grow dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Well, that can so much happen in our relationship with God. He's less of an object of desire and contemplation. Secondly, he says, when slower, there can be a loss of confidence and trust. Whereas before, if Jesus said it, we believed it. Whereas before, if Jesus asked us to do it, we would do it. Now we're suspicious and we're cynical. We have hard thoughts of God in His dealings. We have duty rather than privilege in spiritual exercises. We have less spiritual sensitivity. I think those things can be very profound within us. Christ can become less glorious to the eye and less precious to the heart. Love to Christ's people can start to decay. Our family annoys us. Our Christian family annoys us rather than provokes us to love and good works. Our interest in the advancement and prosperity of the cause of Christ begins to wane. We used to be thrilled and excited at hearing about the work of the gospel in China or the work of the gospel in Brodiferi or the work of the gospel in, a, 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 in another church. But now we've, we've lost interest in all of that. And I think that those are serious things that we have to face up to. We can take refuge in formality. We may become professional Christians. Jeremiah 2 verse 2, go on proclaiming in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the, through the desert, through a land not sown. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, Paul says this, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We can do that so easily. Take refuge in formality. How do they remedy this? How do they deal with this? Well, they are to remember the warmth of their past devotion and contrast it with their present coldness. They are to repent. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. They are to do. It's very interesting, isn't it? Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and feel the things you did at first. That's not what he says. Repent and do the things you did at first. The way to regain the warmth of affection is neither by working up emotion or by theorizing about it, but by doing its duties. We read in Proverbs uh, 16, and I noticed a couple of verses just as David was reading them that kind of tie in with this. First of all, Proverbs 16 and verse 25, which says this, Proverbs 16, 25, says there is, uh, oops, that's wrong, what was what? 11, that's good, because I just thought that's a mistake. Proverbs eleven twenty-five. a generous man will prosper, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. 
Isn't that a fantastic thing that if you are generous, you respond in love rather than you're just doing it because it's your duty, because it's your turn, because you're on the rota, but you're doing it because you love and you're generous, you're going to be refreshed. You give, you're going to receive. Proverbs 16 verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. It's easy for us to fall from love to hard labor, for everything to be a grind. See, there's a kind of contradiction in here, but it's not really. You love someone, you work hard. But just because you work hard doesn't mean that you love them. I don't think you can love someone without working hard. But you want the motivation to be that of genuine love. And that's what Jesus says. He says, go. Don't, you've lost your love. Don't try and work up that love. Just go and do what you did before. And do it for the reason that you did before. And notice what he says in verse 5. It's an extraordinary thing. He says, if you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. You'll cease to be a church. A church without love cannot remain a church. Ichabod, the glory has departed. Ephesus has now disappeared both as a church and as a city. By the way, let me say this. I think Great Britain as a nation will disappear if the church disappears and if the church is not renewed and revived overall. But I haven't time to go into that why I say that, but I do believe that. Please be careful that you don't take refuge in formality, and please don't just accept you've lost the loving feeling. He goes on to say, verse 6, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. He says, you've lost your first love, but he says, again, I want to commend you. I want to commend you. These were uh, people who believed that you could sin boldly in the name of Christian liberty. They believed that you could be spiritually perfect, but you could get drunk, you could sleep around, you could do what you wanted, all in the name of love. Didn't matter. And Jesus says, I hate that. I hate that teaching. I hate that. Above all, I hate that practice. And he says, I'm glad that you do as well. But come back. Come back to loving me, or you're going to lose your church. You're going to lose everything. So, the conclusion for this for me is this. is fairly straightforward. I think we are like Ephesians. I think that there is much to be commended. There is hard work, and there is not tolerating error. But I think that there is enormous <coughs> danger in coldness. There's danger in pride, and there's danger in coldness. And I think we notice that coldness when everything becomes a drudge for us. When everything, when you, it's, it is, it's like being in love in, in this, that when you're with the person you love, doing things that are hard work, you know, simple things, washing the dishes and so on, because it pleases them, because it's helping them, because it encourages them, because it's done out of love, you do it joyfully. It's the same with our work for Jesus Christ. It never stops. You know, you've, you've, there's always more that needs to be done. And people just say, oh, give us a break. 
let's slow down. Let's say, well, sometimes we need to rest. That's true. But we each do what we can to serve the body and to serve Christ through his body. I did miss one thing. Verse 7, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's reflected further on in Revelation 22 and 14, where we read, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. To eat of the tree of life, In Genesis 3.22, human beings were excluded from the tree of life, but now we're being given the right to eat from it. The word paradise is the Persian word meaning pleasure park. It's applied to the Garden of Eden in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Genesis 2.8, you are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, roby, topaz and emerald, chrysolite, oinks and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Ezekiel 28, 13. It donates heaven. And what Jesus promises us is heaven. He promises us that ultimate pleasure park in the purest sense of the word pleasure. At God's right hand is pleasure evermore. Remember the height from which you have fallen. I don't think the Christian life is one that you necessarily begin with a bang, you're converted, everything is wonderful, and then it's downhill all the way until you die and get to heaven and you're back up way again. For most of us, the Christian life is a progression of ups and downs. And I'm pretty certain that almost everyone here at some point in their life, will be able to say, I've lost that love that I had for Jesus. It's grown gold. I didn't even see it coming. It's like eyesight that's gradually got worse. I didn't realize that I was going blind. I didn't realize that I was going cold. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus in His love comes to us and He kind of shakes us He maybe shakes us very gently. He opens our eyes so that we see how cold and how hard we have become, how cynical and how indifferent, how bitter and how jealous and how angry we have become. And he says, he just calls us to repent. He calls us to do the things we did at first and to do them because we love Him. I've noticed this, that when someone first becomes a Christian, they're the ones who, you have to stop them. They sign up to every rota. They do everything. They're so desperate to please. And, and they're not, it's not because of works. It's precisely almost the opposite. It's because they're so grateful and so thankful. And I've noticed that as we go on as Christians, so many things become just so much harder. And it's not because we're getting older. It's because we're getting colder. It's because we've just lost sight of who 
Jesus Christ is. I do not know what God has in store for this congregation. I am so grateful and so thankful for what the Lord has been doing and some of the tremendous blessings that we have received from His hand. I don't know if we'll continue to grow uh, or, or what will happen. I don't know the next fight that's going to happen, the next fallout, the next attack. I have no idea with any of these things. But I know this, this is Christ's church. Christ walks amongst the lampstands. Christ knows. And our responsibility is not to have all the strategies for growth and everything else. It's just simply to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. And maybe you'll be absolutely astonished that the goodness you have tasted so far, instead of being the height, which you're not going to get any higher, it's only the foothills, and you're going to see, and we are going to see so much more. But the absolute key in all of this is that we keep repenting for our lack of love to Jesus Christ, and we just ask Him as we sang, Lord, show me your beauty. Help me to love you more. Help me to see you. Help me to know you. Help me to love you with all my heart and soul and mind. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. Maybe some of us here have never loved you, and we ask that you would help us to see how worthy you are of our giving ourselves to you. But most of us here are believers. We've committed our lives to you. We trust you. Your Holy Spirit has been at work in our lives, shaping us and changing us. And yet we confess for some of us, O Lord, that imperceptibly there has been a coldness and a hardness and a cynicism. Maybe hurt has caused this. Maybe other people's sins as well as our own have been part of this. But Lord, you do not deserve that we should grow cold to you because of what we or others have done. So help us. Lord, we don't want to be um, torn apart by you. We just want to be renewed. We want your Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to help us see your beauty. And we, we do want to serve you. We know we cannot earn our salvation, and we know that we cannot justify ourselves by what we do. But may it be that every cup we wash, every floor we clean, every chair we move, every door we visit, every hospital bed we go to, every home that is open, may it be that it has been done because we love you and we want people to see and to experience your love. We do repent. We ask, O oh Lord our God, that we would turn back and we thank you that you are not a God who says, no, you've left me, forget it. But you are a God who warmly and graciously and wholeheartedly welcomes all who return. Grant that we would do so in your name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.